Hey there, my name's Oshin Lunny and welcome to Audio Talks, presented to you by Harmon. And in this episode, we investigate the fine art of library music, where some of the world's best musicians make collections of music to be used as sonic backdrops to films, TV series and online viral videos. And I'm thrilled to be joined by a dynamic duo of top flight library music makers, Ted Barnes and Ali Friend. Ted Barnes is a folktronica pioneer and writer, renowned solo artist, co-founder of the band Clayhill and an in-demand musician, producer and soundtrack artist who has worked with the likes of Beth Orton, award-winning Americana artist Emily Barker and leading UK film director Shane Meadows. Welcome, Ted. Hello, Mr. Lunny. And joining Ted is Ali Friend, one of the founding members of the pioneering instrumental band Red Snapper, a co-founder of the excellent post-punk disco-funk band Number, a member of the late great Simon Emerson's Imagined Village and he has been collaborating with Ted for many decades as co-founder of the the band Clayhill and on projects with Beth Orton, Alice and the Majesty, Mrs. H and the sing-along band and many more. Welcome, Ali. Hi, hello, Oshin. I hope you're okay. Sorry for the voice. It's a bit croaky <laughs> today, but... <laughs> It's all welcome. Croaky is good. It's a good look, Ali. It's great to have you here. Um, okay, so let's kind of get the ball rolling on this subject matter. Um, how would you define library music for our listeners? Ted? Library music, as far as I know, its uh, other name is production music. I think for ages I got very confused by those two worlds. People would talk about production music and they talk about library music and I'd go, oh, which one do I do? <laughs> but they're roughly the same as far as I know. I describe it to people that don't know as um, the same as good old fashioned libraries where you used to go and take a book out and rent it for a period. So it's exactly the same, but with music. Musicians compose, make music that is then stored in an archive of a company, and then they go around and sell it and put it with film, radio, and other such like mediums. And that is the process. Very much like photo libraries as well. In fact, it's more like photo libraries than it is book libraries, I think, really. I think it started as a sort of a non-commercial outlet for music, like a book library as well. People could make music. And because it was in the same way that people could write whatever they wanted to, people made music in whatever sort of form they wanted to, which made it quite a creative source, an unusual source, I think, to start with. And people, yeah, like you say, people use them for, I think quite a lot of 60s, 1960s TV shows and radio shows picked some amazing bits of music. I suppose some early electronica came from those first shows. And I think it's just, it's kind of grown and grown and grown to become like production music, which people now use, they can go to very quickly. You don't have to go through the whole process of trying to clear publishing and so on. A production company or a TV company can just go and rummage through, find something and use it straight away pretty well makes the mm. process a lot quicker. It's like AI before AI was around, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd go to a library company and tap in Jolly Tuba Tune. Jolly Tuba Tune, please. And uh, a Jolly yeah. Tuba Tune would appear. But it was made by a human being. Absolutely. I actually have some, I mean, for the benefit of the listeners here, I'm holding up a vinyl record, which is called Dramatic and Beat for Blues by the Harmonic Mood Music Library uh, from West Street in London. And uh, it's got tracks such as the, the infamous Mixed Piggles on here, I believe, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Afrobeat, uh, Blue Romance and Hippie Time. That sounds like a whole lot of fun. It says here, electric organ and heavy rhythm in medium fast beat. And this is the thing, they're kind <laughs> of organised with 
what we call metadata now to help folks with a scene that needs music for hippie time, for instance, um, to just come and find this kind of jaunty electric organ thing. It's a very interesting debate, actually, Osha. Me and Ali have spent quite a bit of time on this, is whether the, the track titles do bring people in or whether mm. they put people away. Because um, when we first started making library music, we were really like, you know, we came from a, a rock and roll background where you think about everything to do with the record, including the titles and what the album cover is. And then yeah. as you slowly get involved in the library world, you realise that actually they just want you to make the music really and then, you know, leave it with us. And <laughs> uh, and so, but we used to keep coming up with titles and then we sort of ran out of titles because there's only so many sort of dream blue wonder um, uh, uh, titles that you can come up with. And but But we have noticed some tunes being used more than others um and we do think oh is that because of its title yeah mm. i wonder whether that's more so now than when it than when the libraries first started mm. i think people have become more aware of, of no one's got the time to sort of flick through a lot of tracks so they might they maybe do go for the title mm. right There's so many tracks we've done which have ended up with a title involving sunshine yeah or or beaches i guess because people are looking for something light and funny and which is uh yeah a lot of what a lot of what we do compared to bouncing baby, which I think was was one of our hits, wasn't it? Wasn't it, it was wasn't that the yeah. Walkers advert. Yeah, it was bouncing baby. What? Yeah, Amazing. and uh, chasing milk floats. I think was always my favourite. Oh yeah, Chase, I don't know how that one got through, but that that's <laughs> that's been well used, well thumbed. Let's kind of rewind the clock a bit and go into that rock and roll background because it's super interesting, I think, for the listeners to get a flavour of your journey through a few of the things that I mentioned. But, you know, here you are making library music. It's been licensed by folks like Walkers, which is possibly the biggest crisp brand in the UK. I think they're a global name as well. Ted, starting with your good self, talk to us a bit about your journey from being a kind of pioneer of various genres in the UK, like Americana, like Folktronica. I mean, these kind of definitions are quite arbitrary, but both both of you have great reputations in the field of music and I'd be interested to hear about your path to making these great collections of library music today. Um, well, thank you very much, Oshin, first and foremost for that. Um, <laughs> that's very, very kind of you to say those words. I started making music professionally kind of by accident, really. I was a, a musical instrument maker first and then I met Beth Orton through Ali because Snapper were working with her and we got on very well. And she asked me and Ali and the drummer, Will Blanchard, if we wanted to make the first album with her. And I was very sort of, um, yeah, okay then. <laughs> sort of naive, I think. And, and yeah, that'd be nice. And then obviously it sort of blew up, which was lovely. So I was able to go along with her career for 10, 12 years. I played and wrote and worked with her. And then we went separate ways and me and Ali formed Clay Hill. And all in the meantime, I had my solo stuff that I slowly began to piece together, which was, it's hard to say. I mean, it, it sort of did fit into the folk tonica, but it was more, well, we were joking before we went on air about it being sort of sad clown music, but that is sort of a, one of the best titles of it, really. It's very cinematic and quite lush neoclassical I think is another word for it but it's got lots of folk references so there's a lot going on in it but when Clay Hill got dropped by our label dare I say it I think there was a, a couple of years in the doldrums and for both mm. uh, me and Ali where we were trying to sort of work out what we were going to do next and then realising also that you, you've gotten to a certain age as well and everything creeps in 
haven't we all dear? Mm. And we have, we'd had friends over the years that had done library music. And I think library music in our head, when we were sort of busy gigging and rock and rolling, had a sort of bit of a reputation that we tried to sort of, you sort of not get involved with. It was, oh, no, we mustn't do that. That's selling our souls. Oh, <laughs> terrible, terrible. Um, and then we suddenly got to a point where we went, oh, good Lord, you know, maybe we should give this a go. And it was an absolute joy. It was a breath of fresh air. We suddenly had this mm. company who went for an idea that we had come up with. And we got to sit in a studio with my best mate Al and make an album with very, very little pressure from, a, you know, a record company or anybody. Mm. And we took it seriously. Yeah. We weren't glib about it. We wanted to, you know, put our heart and soul in it as we do all our projects. And so um, so it was an absolute joy to walk into library music and then the relationship started really with the company from there. I like that detail that there wasn't quite as much pressure to have a short-term goal uh, or objective with the music. You were free to create something of lasting value because, you know, it's going to be in the library and it's, people are going to license it over many decades, ideally, you know? Yeah. Ironically, the, the one thing that they said to us was, let's do an album of what we suggested, which was quite sort of quirky, ukulele-led things. And he said, because I, mm. think, I think there's only about a year left in this. All right. And I went, we went, all right, we better do it then. And yeah. here we are, how many years later? How, 14, 15 years later? Yeah. And they're still sort of going, could you do one of those sort of quirky <laughs> ukulele albums? We've just been asked again to do some more tracks. <laughs> it's like, Let oh, the good fantastic. times roll. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I think what was nice about it as well, because I think when we first started, it came out of the end of Clay Hill that I think we'd, we'd half written some tunes. And it was... Um, wanting them to be used somehow. And I think we knew some people who'd been doing library music. I think David from Snapper had done some. Once we'd kind of, or in my head anyway, once I've kind of got over the stigma of it being library music, whatever that might mean, I just thought we just want to get music out. And I didn't really know much about it, but they were, as a company, very supportive and they just, they helped. I think you have to, something you have to do is you have to abandon and not get so precious hmm. about what you end up with when we've done our own albums, Ted and I, when we work with Beth or with Snapper, the finite detail can get a bit crazy and you're, you're very reluctant to let it go and to give it. And mm. with library music, I think it was a part of a new process of understanding that this is what it is. And I like it, but it, it's not necessarily my oeuvre that I would want, but it will do the job. And so you let them take it. You let them sort of have the responsibility for doing something with it. And I kind of, uh, there's kind of freeing and so we, we've always, when we've written music together, Ted and I, for anything, but even for library, I think some, some people's approach to um, production music or library music is very much, that's what is needed. We'll give them that. And it's kind of, it can be quite sterile, but Ted and I aren't, we're just not, um, rightly or wrongly, not very good at doing that. So we end up putting a lot more in of ourselves and trying to make it kind of, we'd sort of make it quite precious and uh, maintain some sort of soul in it somehow, mm. which is what I think a lot of early library uh, musicians and, pro and productions had. So right. maybe compared to now, I don't know, maybe I'm mm. being cynical about it. No, there's a hell of a lot of library music out there. I mean, it's phenomenal, yeah. absolutely phenomenal. So I hope that what we're doing is injecting a bit of our, personalities or what have you that we would yeah. do with any album you know and that's what carries the weight and why we keep getting asked back you know so um so yeah and also it doesn't feel a million miles we haven't had to distort what we do or sort of cheapen it hugely you know yeah. that the, the boundaries are still quite close to us um you know i remember one we went to uh to one company saying you know 
about a sort of Nick Drake style album with strings and and they were just like brilliant and we had a really lucky first sort of seven albums with them where we just suggest things and they'd go yeah brilliant and we go oh right oh okay <laughs> so we got to you know write a sort of Nick Drake style album with string section in the studio you know it's like wow, <laughs> wow. this is alright isn't it <laughs> this is great but obviously what gets used and what doesn't get used then becomes you know it, it becomes a sort of a factor yeah yeah Indeed. And what is the, just so folks can kind of click through on the show notes and uh, check out the collection, what's the name of the label or the library that people will find your work in? Well, we first started, the, the initial company we're talking about there is called West One Music. Gotcha. And they were quite, when we first started, they were quite young and now they've, they've become quite um, a, a bigger player. They'd sort of, they become global now. Yeah, they've been very supportive and um, yeah, I like that, I like the ethos. Ah, nice. And so you've put together seven albums for, for that label, is that right? Or that library? More. More, well, I think now. I'm not quite More. sure what number we're up to. I mean, some writers are literally knocking them out. They're literally doing sort of two, three, four a year, you know, and it's, wow. it's, it, that's their life dedicated. I think me and Ali always wanted to get a, a balance where we were doing that, but we were also doing other projects just so we were able to keep it fresh. So we didn't want to become sort of worn and yeah. and sort of bitter about it. And I think that's one of the other joys, apart from getting to work with a great collaborator and friend, it's also that it becomes a backbone of your income. I think for some people it becomes more than that, but I think for us it's more of a backbone, which is lovely yeah. because it means that we've been able to do other projects, you know, work mm. with songwriters, do instrumental music and what have you that perhaps doesn't pay so well, you know, that isn't paying and you can make a decision and go, well, I, I believe in that, so I'll do it. And you've got a, a nest of what the library's doing, you know, so that, that's a lovely position to be in. Yeah, it's very smart. I really like that balance. And it means like you're still holding on to that passionate side of what you do creatively and mm. isn't necessarily connected to the outcome of sales or whatever, because you kind of have it balanced out with the library music work, which has still got a lot of integrity, has got a lot of soul in there. Yeah. But it's a different vibe altogether in terms of the economy of it. Um, but Addy, talk to us a bit about your path, because we heard that great parallel path from Ted, which obviously involved you with a lot of stages from that absolute breakthrough album from Beth Orton trailer park back in the day I'm sure many listeners know and mm. uh, then you got involved in many many different projects over the years and also kind of ended up dovetailing perfectly in this world of library music with your old mate and collaborator Ted yeah it's funny how things work out isn't it <laughs> you never know who you're going to end up working with and what sort of music you'll be making but um, I'm pleased to have done all of it I, I mean I suppose I started with Red Snapper as um, in the mid 90s um, we were an instrumental band, mostly some vocals, and it was quite soundtracky. We came from different backgrounds, the core members of the band, and we were interested in a lot of hip hop. We and as such, we were interested in where samples came from. But we tried to make our own samples, mostly sampling ourselves, which became a, a new thing, I suppose. And from that, we worked with Beth Orton because she used to hang around in some of the places we used to go and play and so on and got her on a couple of tracks. And I know Ted had always fancied working with Beth, well, not always, since he'd first heard bits. So we introduced, and it worked out very well, doing that first album with her, Trailer Park, which I was I was kind of disappointed with, I think, when we made it, because it, it felt quite dilute. I thought it was going to be much more, more hip-hop, which is where I was at at the time. 
but in fact, it's a great album. And Andrew Weatherall got involved in some of the tracks and created a, a new soundscape for her with Mr. Ted's lovely guitar playing and some crazy drumming from Will Blanchard, Will Wildcat. So I think going through Clay Hill, Ted and I, the band we formed together later, was a totally different approach to music. I think we'd changed and we'd grown up and wanted different things from it. And it was really, in my mind, when we were left with some tunes, which I just didn't want to lose, but no label to put them out because the label just couldn't afford what we wanted to do. So we um, we approached a library company that I'd been recommended through uh, David and Red Snapper. And he'd always said to me, just let them make the decisions about it. Don't be precious about it. That's how it would work. And I, and I remember holding that in my head. But in fact, they were very amenable to us and let us, to an extent, create what we wanted to, which is quite... Uh, I think that's one of the reasons we're perhaps we're still doing it because I think we were encouraged and looked after early doors in that sort of world. And I, I had, there was a stigma in my head about library music, which has totally gone now. And I think if you need to make money, which sometimes you do as musicians, you can't always do it in the way you want. As any artist, artists don't spend their whole lives just, well, unless, unless you're, I don't know, Tracy I mean, making lots of money out of doing whatever you want. But sometimes you have to buckle down and do some other work. And it, it can be just as creative and feed into other things, you, other projects you're doing. I think it's uh, creativity is a brilliant thing. And if we're being paid to do it by Walker's crisp adverts or Japanese current affair programs, which we had our music used on, then uh, so be it. Fantastic stuff, Ali. I mean, this really, both of you do have stellar careers and it's it's no surprise that your library music is very much in demand. But talk to us a bit about your usual process for putting together a collection. You mentioned there that you come up with an idea, you approach the library and say, we'd like to do a collection of, you know, X, Y, Z. So what's the kind of creative process behind actually realising a collection? It's changed, basically, Oshin. When we first started 14, 15 years ago, it was very much that we could come to the company with an idea for a yeah. whole album, which is like, well, to us, we always used to push it a bit, which was sort of 15 tracks of a theme that we sort of, we'd look at their catalogue and go, ooh, there may be that nuance. And believe you me, their catalogue is, is huge. So you have yeah. to really find a nuance. It's sort of like, you know, jazz with maraca. <laughs> So we kept doing that. And for years, that was working fine and great. Mm. And then there was a slight shift. I think it's them working out, looking. I mean, they have so much data. Lordy Lou, you should see their data on what <laughs> tracks and where it's sold, where what it's yeah. done. So yeah. they just look at that data and they're just going, oh, okay. We know that that jolly tune with the saxophone solo did really well in Hong Kong. So, yeah. you know, let's do more of that, guys. And also the notion of an album seems to have changed in that we seem to be getting less whole albums. Yeah. I mean, I think it's changed probably because there's so much music out there now generally, not only yeah. in the world's a library and production music, but just generally. And so it's becoming more and more prescriptive what, what a, a library company might want. So I suppose it's changed hugely since we started in that it, it, it used to be like a, just a, you've just got a whole shelf of music and you choose whatever you want and people would take bits to sample or whatever. And now it's, we need a 30 second piece for this particular atmosphere and this particular emotion. Mm. And I think we're being asked more and more to come up with that. And so it's become quite finite. Mm. I think we've managed to get away with it. We can still make it our own. Um, yeah. and leave a little bit of Ted and Ali sort of soul in it somehow. But 
I think it's become a a slightly trickier thing. Library companies seem to be fragmenting into different companies. So West One we've worked with a lot, but they've got sibling and children companies now, you know, who we tend to work for, and they specialise in different areas, whether it be more dance music or more sort of classical music or whatever. But I think we're still able to create what we want. Even when they ask us to do something, we're still able to do it. But I long for the days again when we can just say, we'd like to do a whole album for you of the Ukrainian inspired umpire music and we'd go to Ukraine and we could just hang out with some Ukrainian musicians and, and just record and play with them. But now it's more, we need that nuanced emotion, you know. There's a production team within the library world and then there's the sales team and they're the ones that are on the phone all the time or going to meetings, having lunch, taking BBC or whoever out and are mm. trying to persuade them to use their libraries. And they then come back and say to the producers, well, you know what? You know what they were all talking about? They were all talking about um, ska music mixed with opera, you know? I mean, <laughs> I know that's crazy, but do you want to do some? You know, that's yeah. more how it works now. And we go, no, that's hideous. That don't, yeah. that'd be so ridiculous. Um, and as Ali says, I think it's become such a thing. I, I don't know what it was like originally, but there's so many people that were working for library companies that got sussed and realised that if they left and made their own library company, they could do really well. And then they'd employ somebody who would then go, well, yeah, but I, oh, I can get my own collection. And now I think it's probably reached a point where it's a, a bit ridiculous. I think there's so many library companies out there and they can't all dine on the same amount of business, you know? And so mm. um, we were really lucky in getting involved with West One because they were the sort of new boys on the block, but they grew just yeah. really quickly and they became a sort of a runner with all the other big companies, you know, the classics, you know, KPM and, and what have you. So, wow. Um, Speaking of KPM, the gold standard of libraries in the 60s, mm. and they had artists like Alan Hawkshaw, uh, mm. sadly d deceased now, who wrote yeah. so many mm. kind of well-loved themes. and Yeah, lots of TV, children's TV. and yeah. uh, I think, yeah. did he do Grange Hill? Was it Grange Hill? Or, uh... I think you're right, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. But like, it was very much about the personalities and, mm. you know, they had a signature of the music. And this is what people come to your collections for. They come for that soul. But on a parallel track, if you like, there is the spectre of AI. And, you know, I dare say if you probably went and found some AI, it says, yeah, we really need some ska and opera for like 4.5 seconds and this key and yeah. whatever. It could probably generate something. But there's a lot of discussion as related to generative AI and creativity, where, you know, people are actually going to want to see the AI stuff badged and the human stuff badged and the human stuff will be at a premium. So, you know, for all that everything's been driven by targets and opportunities and metadata and all the rest, I think people may well come back to the human way of doing things and they would like a full collection and they would like to kind of vibe off the creativity of the people making it. So it might kind of come full circle, yeah, I would say. It's that thing of kind of always fearing the future sometimes and mm. it, in terms of creativity as new technology comes along and I think it's, it's probably ever been thus yes with whatever it might be and you have to kind of embrace it and understand that it is there but I think in, in, in the same way that everyone's come back around to vinyl again which I still think is my preferred listening experience generally yeah. why wouldn't people come back around even I'm sure that AI is going to have an influence but I think there's going to be something above and beyond AI, which makes us come back to people again. I'm, I have faith in us. 
I don't. <laughs> you don't. I don't. <laughs> I know, but I've I've had a couple of coffees this morning. So <laughs> something else which just struck me thinking of like going ahead. What's happening now in terms of all the streaming services? There's mm. so many streamers you know, Netflix and Apple TVs and Amazon and so on. Mm. And something which I think is good that's come out of, out of that is there's been so much content made and they need so much music and it's spawned, it's allowed lots of other musicians and sometimes slightly odd music to accompany these slightly odd series. Yeah. And we were asked, there's a recent one, White Lotus. What? And before that, Utopia. Wow. And the music in that, which I think is bonkers, but we were asked to do something inspired by some of that music, which is very percussive mm -hmm. and very playful. And it's just so up our street. And would we be enough of that opportunity? Now, it, it's one of the most enjoyable. I don't think it's not actually released yet, so we can't let you hear any of it. But it's one of the most enjoyable experiences we've had making music. And that wouldn't have come mm -hmm. without streaming services and, and, you know, the way things move forward. Well, fantastic. White Lotus inspired collection is music to my ears. I can't wait to hear that. Uh, so do please send us a link when it comes out. And also talk to us a bit about the publishing side of things, because we know there's rights associated with music. If you wanted to have like Beyonce in your TV show, you'd have to clear a bunch of different rights and publishing and mechanicals and all this kind of stuff. How does this work with libraries? And is the functionality one of the reasons that people use libraries for music, for film and TV and viral hits? Yeah, they don't need to get approval. You know, they've either got a blanket agreement with the library company, which means they can use any of their stock, or they've got individual agreements. So there's no, you know, I've, I've co-written songs with Beth Orton, and if a film comes through, I still, my publisher still writes to me and goes, would you like to use, you know, are you happy for her, them to use? Yeah. Um, whereas none of that happens with, uh, we literally don't know what it's being used for. I've sat and watched the TV and had, adverts come on and I go, God, this really rings a bell, really rings a bell. Well, who is this? I love this. This is great. <laughs> it's the sort of thing I'd do. Yeah. It's me. Um, that was an eBay ad, I think. It was like, oh, my Lord, oh that's my, my guitar. I thought, but um, So, no. And I was going to say earlier that that is part of the joy, I have to say, because mm. it's so lovely giving an album to a company and yeah. then not having to worry or go out and dine and wine people, you know, all my, yeah. most of my job is so taken up with sort of admin and like getting people to hear what you're doing and what have you to suddenly mm. have something where you don't. Yeah. And the other flip side of that is that at the same time as library, I also got, and I think Ali's done it as well. You sort of get involved with doing more sort of ads companies coming direct to you and saying, you know, can you do an advert for, you know, Clark shoes or what have you, you know, we want it to sound like uh, Bruce Springsteen and you're sort of like, oh, oh, okay. And you do it, you <laughs> break your balls to do it. Yes. And they always leave it for some strange reason a minute before they're about to seal the the whole production off. And you're just, why have you left it so late? Yeah, well, I'm sorry. You, you know, don't go and see your family tonight. Do this piece of music. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And yeah. you do it. And then you don't hear anything from them. They don't even say thank you. They don't even say nothing. And, you know, so many writers know this. And mm. and so many writers keep going with that because the dangling carrot is, please have 20 grand when it's done, wow. um, which obviously is a great dangling. But I personally felt like a complete muppet doing it. I felt more disillusioned, more broken yeah. and uh, than, yeah. than I did than doing library music, which was like doing our album with a friend in our own yeah. time, 
send it uh, to that company and then they always yeah. use a chemical brothers track as well whatever happens <laughs> yeah whatever the adverts for whatever it is oh uh, yeah sorry we, we just use this chemical yeah Okay, what, about, what about the opera sky? Oh no, we had a change of uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we we use Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A big takeaway there is, you know, you don't have to deal with the thankless task of, you know, frequently unpaid pitches. Uh, you don't have to do a lot of that kind of promotion and admin work. And the stuff is pre-cleared. So folks yeah. who want to use some of your music can just have a chat with the library, drop it into the Walkers, Crisps or the Clark's advert or whatever. And it's just everybody's happy. I mean, this sounds like a, a great balance. It is. The important thing, though, Oshin, is to not ever go near what they're doing with it though because if if because sometimes it can come back i remember we were mixing an album and we went in to mix it with them and a guy from the studio next door came along and said yeah oh we just got one of your tracks from your last album do you want to come and hear it and so me and ali went through to the other room and they they'd basically taken this three minute song they just with a pair of scissors had gone snip 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 and then mm. gone joined it all together <laughs> And then they'd put this voice over over the top where it was like, Cain and Wicker work well together. And it was a, basically a Cain and Wicker work well together shop in Norwich. In Norwich. For Norwich FM radio. Norwich Wicker world. Yeah. I think I burst open with laughter and Ali burst into tears. And it, yeah. it was somewhere between those two scenarios was, was how we were feeling. It was just like, oh, so yeah, God. it's better to not, to not know sometimes. <laughs> All you, you know. need is like that Alan Partridge voiceover. Yeah, 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 completely. That's just perfect. I I love it. But that's another thing that's changed as well. I mean, when we were in rock and roll, I mean, you in rock and roll, when we were doing No, music, you were, you like, toured the world, yeah, you know. When we were doing rock and roll, like yeah. people doing adverts were scored about. I mean, you hear stories of, uh, what's that band, uh, the Icelandic band, who would just turn oh, down oh, ad Ross. after ad. Yeah, ad after yeah, ad yeah, after yeah, ad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then... Um, and then now, apparently, not Sigurós, I think it was uh, Moom or something, they were just oh, like Moom. gagging, gagging yeah. for an advert, you know. And that's changed because there's so many difficult ways now, you know, to, to make money from music, oh, yeah. survive, yeah, doing your I... art is really Absolutely. bloody hard. And so yeah. I think doing an ad and doing library music, the, the mentality to it has completely changed in that it provides this backbone, you know, and it's like, okay, I will do an ad and it's, it's a bugger. I, th- I yeah, wish I didn't I, have to, but I think it's. I think it's become. I think it's true. I think it's become much more acceptable amongst yeah. musicians about the, the the fellowship of musicians to to do that to to try and take an ad or to do more library albums and you you congratulate each other on having you know done another album or put some music to an Adidas ad whatever because we have to do that as we all know it's harder mm. and harder in music. I suppose that's the digital age as well, which I'd, I'd thought about compared to those original library albums, which are all vinyl. Yeah. It has made it easier. Like Ted said, to, you can snip a track, you can create tracks, and you, you can have somebody saying, you can have Wicker World in Norwich <laughs> or, that's you know, point. the local, the local <laughs> grocers down my road yeah. saying, yeah. we only want to hear the double bass on that track because we <laughs> like that. Um, can you take everything else off? And we just want that bit which goes boom, 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 boom. And so within 30 seconds, that's what they've got. Yeah. Whereas it, you wouldn't have been able to do that. But um, it does sound good, actually, that advert for my grocers. Yeah. With the, uh, I just want to actually <laughs> clear up that, that, that we're not giving Kane and Wicker work well together a hard time at all. It's no. a fantastic <laughs> yeah, We're going to have to take that bit out again. And I can really highly recommend, if anyone's can, in Norwich, that they I swing by it. Yeah. <laughs> they've got those 60s chairs that you can sit in that are suspended. You know, all that oh, business is brilliant. Wow. 
Well, that sounds like a, a great place to visit next time you're on in Norwich, dude. In Norwich. <laughs> I hope it's still around. Um, <laughs> another thing with that, which kind of relates to that, is what I would really love is one of our tunes to be used in um, a sort of wholesale or just a sample of in a, in a banging hip hop tune, which is what always used to happen with um, some of the original, a lot of the original library stuff. And the one I always think of is. Um, Mad Villain, I don't know if you know that track, Meat Grinder, and and yeah, uh, which I yeah. which I've loved. I checked up before where that sample's from, and it's from a library album. Yes, and it is a beautiful tune. And then you listen to the original library track, and it's glorious. It's a yeah. glorious piece of sort of avant garde jazz. So, with a strange sort of Hawaiian guitar over the top of it, like you know, like Scar Opera again. Why not? Why not have all these things thrown in together? <laughs> mm. But I would love that. That would be the pinnacle for me if Kendrick Lamar, if Kendrick Lamar came and said, yeah, we're going to use that little bit of acoustic quirky music you did and going to make Sweet. a banging tune from it. Amen. Kendrick, if you're listening, this is your, your mission, should yes. you accept yeah. it. Yeah. Once you've been to Wicker, Wicker, Wicker Land. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's between <laughs> you and Wicker. You have to barter it out. Once you're buzzed up from your visit to Wickerland, come out and make a banging hip hop tune with uh, one of the guys' backtracks. That's brilliant. And um, talk to us a bit about, you know, you mentioned Ali, the digital age there. Folks can get in touch. They can say, we'd like this bit of double bass, which they couldn't have done on any of these magnificent old KPM vinyls or whatever. Um, but we also have, you know, the attention economy, people making reels and, you know, TikTok videos. Has this changed the world of library music, do you think, with people using shorter clips? I think it has. I think it must have done because yeah. people demand that and people expect it. Well, there's a whole generation of kids and people involved in media now. So not just kids, but younger people who who have grown up with that and, and expect to be able to access it as quickly as you like. It's just yeah. with a few clicks of a button and, and you have got that snippet and you have just got two or three parts of the instrumentation of it. And yeah, they, they end up on TikTok. They end up on YouTube, little ads, little snippets. But I think it's fair to say that... Um the deals in regards to the writers hmm. have definitely changed from what I can work out. And, and some friends that were involved in the time, there was a sort of a romance period where you were making a very good living out of this world. And, and anyone hmm. sort of wanting to get involved, it's probably quite clear to, uh, and unless we're doing something hideously wrong, that romance period is not hmm. around anymore. It's a lot harder it's a lot more fragmented, a lot bittier. And the deals have changed. Like everything in life, it's, you know, unfortunately, it's the people making the music that unfortunately get hit. Yeah. The deals are not as good as they were. And it's always reliant on the next youth coming along who are prepared to do it because they don't know any different, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, for absolutely no money. It, sadly, that is the way it goes. And and for me, I think that's the problem with AI is I, I think like a lot of things in life, you get a new generation coming up who don't know any different. And I don't mean that insultingly. That's just what they've grown up with. And I, I think a lot of people won't be able to tell, you know, I, I think they'll just do it because oh, I've just got to do this ad and I just got to knock it mm. out before blah, blah. So I'm just, oh, it's brilliant. I can just go to AI and, and I'll do it. And we don't have to pay the musicians. You know, I never thought I'd see a day when the whole of youth, you know, that youth want music to be around. They want musicians and bands to go and see, but they're not, the concept of paying for an album is, is a, you know, I remember having rows with my, 
cousins in laws and da 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 about the concept of that. And, you know, what? You know, no way do I want to pay. You know, and it's like that relationship breaks down. And I think it will happen. I think mm. with library, people don't hear it. You know, lots of things have changed, haven't they? It's like the way we make music to click tracks and to you know everything now. You know, I mean, compared to the 70s or what have you where it's so much about the band being so tight and in it you know and and now our ears have adjusted Mm -hmm. to digital worlds you know and and i think that will happen again to ai i think there'll always be other people doing it very human things because we all to certainly well no a small section of people crave that and want that in their lives but um i don't know about mass Mass capitalism, which is what computerization is. <laughs> Sorry, don't start me. Blimey, blimey. I, I think, I think, like all these things, you have to. It's there. You have to embrace it somehow and use it. And I mean, I think digitalization. When you know, making music digitally, when that first happened, there was a lot of naysayers. I mean, you even go back. You know, Dylan going electric. That's outrageous. And they'll like we make music digitally and and I expect to be able to turn my computer on and, and I use, you know, various pro tools or logic or whatever. I use various programs and you create music with it. And I expect to be able to do that. And we've embraced that now. And I think that's good. And I think with AI, we're going to have to try and do the same. It's there and we have to somehow make, use it for what we would like to use it with and not let it control us. And mm. I think it's just, it, it's, it was ever thus. I think, uh, you know, things change and we, and we move with them. I still personally prefer listening to records, music on records, and I still like seeing a live band. But um, I think I think also, Tebo, and I think people, the kids, you know, our kids still like live music. They still like to hear. They can hear the difference, I think. So, oh, yeah. Let's, let's have some, we'll have faith in them, eh? Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think there's always a place for humans in the future. There's always that enthusiasm, that connection with the live music experience, uh, the authentic music experience. There may well be genres that kind of career off into a kind of dystopian techno future, but there will always be a place for finely crafted library music and live music and, you know, recordings yeah. made by craftspeople and you can't fake it you know there's there's certain things that AI I suspect will never be able to fake convincingly and I know that people will consciously move towards human produced music and working with other humans for all that the tech is going to do its own thing you know I I, I think the future is is kind of uh, it's it's got humans at the centre of it I am optimistic I'm with you on that one Ashina I agree Hurrah. <laughs> so listen, speaking of which, I would like now to ask you both a very important question. It's one that we ask all of our VIP guests on the Audio Talks podcast, and that is to choose a track for our title playlist. And it can absolutely be one of your own tracks. So I'm going to come first to your good self, Ted Barnes. I'd like to add uh, a tune called Absence, which was on my last solo album that I released last year. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks to you. That's a, a high quality addition to our playlist. Thank you. And your good self, Ali Friend, what track would you like to add to the playlist? Uh, well, thanks. I thought we were going to put a, a library track up, because uh, so I was going to put up a tune uh, called Lily's Progress which is very emotive and string, but you orchestrated like a, a string octet, which we hadn't done before. Cool. And I'm very pleased with it. It's a piece of music I just come back to and listen to and feel proud of. And, and a lot of music I've done in the past, I just can't stand listening to anymore. <laughs> 
It just sounds rubbish. That's no way That's, to talk about Red Snappers. <laughs> yeah. I love your albums. Yeah, not everyone does. You're your own worst critic, but that isn't always the way. <laughs> yeah, so, but I can keep going back to that track. But then now we're saying we don't have to do that. I was, otherwise, I'll put up Meat Grinder, oh. the, uh, the sort of mad villain track. Sweet. Because it's kind of sits what we're talking about. Uh, so that Mad Villain track is an absolutely brilliant reference. I love it. It samples the golden age of library music, brings it into modern, yeah. combines that sampledelic philosophy and really highlights some of that incredible, you know, love that people have for the golden age of library music, for library music as an art form today. Absolutely. And, you know, long may it continue. And I'm going to add myself uh, one from one of the masters from the golden age. Of course, Alan Hawkshaw and the track is Beat Me Till. I'm blue released on the KMP <laughs> library I'm not sure if we could get that title through now you see that's no, the changing it's, face it's, okay. <laughs> that is true <laughs> but you listen to it and man it's just a bunch of demon musicians in a high quality studio probably in Soho probably in the early 70s you know, just the, the the instruments are on fire. They're all doing solos and trading back and forth and they're having the time of their lives. And that kind of humanity is just so infectious in life and farming. I love it to bits. So listen, thank you so much for joining us on the Audio Talks podcast, Mr. Ted Barnes. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. Great to catch up. And to your good self, Mr. Ali Friend. Thank you very much, Ashina. It's been very enjoyable, actually. Wonderful. Well, I always enjoy catching up with the pair of you and putting the world to rights. So, listeners, don't forget to subscribe, comment, and share Audio Talks with your friends and family. If you're enjoying the Audio Talks series of podcasts, why not pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a nice review? It really does mean a lot to us and it helps listeners get to know about the groovy guests we talk to in every episode like Ted and Ali. So in the meantime, for more exclusive content, some behind-the-scenes goodies and maybe even some competitions, connect with us over on the Instagram. You can find us at Audio Talks Podcast. We'll put plenty of notes in for Ted and Ali in the show notes and we'll be back soon for some more pioneering Audio Talks. See you next time.